message. This message from your word penetrates us in ways that we didn't anticipate when we came in, but yet it causes us to walk in a manner that is worthy of you. Lord, thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, well, Aaron went to go get some um, some batteries for me. I'm going to, two people I had, I'm going to sidebar it real quick, like, here you go. I just need two. Oh, look at that. You ready, Michael? Is it on? Is it working? Let's see if this is working yet. No, it's not working yet, but my end's on, so I know that the green light's good to go. Hey, I can hear myself. You guys can hear me now? Okay, I had a conversation with multiple people this week, and, and what they're, they said, you know, Paul, what we should do is, during your sermon, some people should say amen, because, you know, it's kind of like you guys are there wanting to participate, and yet... You know, every now and then I see a picture of you while I'm preaching, and some of you are on your phone, some of you are looking down, and that's okay, but, but if God says something to you and you agree with it, it would help me, and it might help other people if you said amen every now and then. Do it, but as a group, we're going to, as a, there's one, all right. Okay. <laughs> Joy says, no, no, not me. Okay, so as a group, we're going to practice it. It's a pretty complex word. It's called amen, okay? And then if you want to add to that, like, oh, just not, shut up, Paul, don't do that. Um, but if you want to add, oh, go, keep going, or something like that, go ahead and do it. But it, it will energize the church, it will energize me as well, okay? We're going to repeat this word together, ready? Amen. Amen. Okay, let's do it again. Amen. Amen. All right, one more time. One, two, three, amen. amen. Okay, I'm going to have you repeat something else during the, during the sermon, and you, and... It's called a difficult, and because I'm going to have you repeat a line that if, if you truly mean it, it becomes exceedingly, exceedingly hard to pray, but at the same time, it becomes almost impossible not to pray. Exceedingly hard, but impossible not to. That's, you're, going to ulti- you're going to want to go into the book of Acts and turn to chapters 6 and 7. If you're on your cell phone device, that's really easy to get to. Um, just make sure you have your ringers off. We'll try to remind you to turn your ringers back on because sometimes I get home and, and my phone's still on vibrate till like 6 o'clock at night. Why didn't anybody text me? And they did, I just didn't know. So help us remember to turn your cell phones back on. That A couple of years ago, in 2015, we were able to go to Washington, D.C. for a summer vacation. If you've never been to Washington, D.C., I would encourage you to go ahead and save your money up because all of the museums and everything else along that corridor are free. You can walk into any of those museums and, and check it out. It's really, really a great place to be. We were at the Washington Monument, and, and which is fascinating, and it has this gentle slope on all the way around it, kind of these gently glided or guiding sidewalks where you can walk to the top. I didn't, wasn't able to get in because I didn't know you needed a ticket, but apparently it sells out in advance and you need a ticket to get into the top. I would have long, loved to have gone into the top of the 555-foot-tall monument. Uh, the reason I bring that up is because while I was at the Washington Monument a couple of years ago, on a week ago Saturday, there was some conflict at the monument. There was conflict at the monument and there was a group of Catholic kids. His name is Nathan Phillips and... and they were there. They were there for the March for Life rally um, in support of of anti-abortion legislation, and that's good. They were there to support pro-life 
access. And they were there, and they were waiting for their, they were waiting for their bus. And while they were there, um, there was also a group of Native Americans that were trying to bring a notice to the indigenous people and Native American stuff. And then there was also a group that you really can't see. And they're called the Black Hebrew Israelites. And this is a group that the Southern Conference or Southern Lawyer League has declared as a hate group. They were there. They were spewing all kinds of stuff over the bullhorn at people. At the women, they would, they would loudly degrade them and say things that aren't appropriate to say inside of a church service. And then, then they were saying the same things against the Native Americans. They were, they were accusing them. You're just a bunch of... Um, idol-worshipping people, you, you worship totem poles, and you worship the eagle, and, and you worship the bear, and, and you're just idol-worshipping people. And then once they found out the Catholic kids were there, the Catholic kids, that, you know, you, you, you belong to a horrible organization, your people are wrong, and, and they were just causing all kinds of tension. And then someone took a videotape of it, and when they took a videotape of it, the uh, commentators said, you know, the young kid is just smirking at this Native American, and it really, they, they, went, they went the wrong direction really quick-like. Many of them ultimately had to apologize, but some of them didn't. Some of the commentators said, you know what, you need to, that kid, that young Nathan Phillips, his face is the most punchable face I've ever seen. News commentator of a 16-year-old boy. Meanwhile, the news commentators weren't paying attention to all the vile stuff that was going on around. They were just looking at this boy. Anti-Christian rhetoric in a way that, that caused great stir. Some of, them, some of them much to their shame. I bring that up not so much to comment on the issue, but to comment on sometimes the times in which we're fitting in. Because as a Christian, there will be times in which we as believers and followers of Christ are going to be asked... Or, or asked to do things that are going to go against the cultural vein. And when we stand up for our values, the values that the world think are obsolete, antiquated, and old, we're going to get yelled at. We're going to get, we're going to get um, bombarded. We're going to be accused of being phobic, homophobic, whatever you want to call it. And I think that we have a lot to learn in, from a guy named Stephen in the Bible. See, how you respond to venomous speech when venomous speech is spewed against you in a, as a person of faith, how do you respond when people are spewing hatred towards you because you're a believer in Jesus Christ? I think this morning we're going to look at a, at a tough question. We're going to look at a, at a, a tough response. We're going to look at a, a, a prayer that was prayed. And, and then as we do that, we're going to find that there is a secret. Stephen, the text of Acts, gives us a key that if we turn that key, then that key will, will trans would have never anticipated. How do you respond when venomous speech is spewed against you? Because you're a person of faith. Because you follow Jesus. Because you believe the Bible. And you believe it is God's sole word. See, Stephen, in context, he was about ready to be stoned for his faith. His faith that Jesus is the Messiah, he was about ready to be stoned. And then he prays a prayer at the very ending as he's falling down, his stones pelting him, his stones are, are crashing upon him. He prays a prayer. And I want to know, does he pray this prayer? Lord, hold this sin against him. Lord, Lord, he's falling down. Things are hitting him. Things are pelting him. Things are stones that will eventually kill him. Does he pray, Lord, hold this sin against them? No. no. Fill in this blank. 
He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I want us to repeat these words because, because we need to learn not so much these words, but we need to learn why Stephen was able to say those words. Let's repeat this together. One, two, three. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Let's do it again. One, two, three. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. See, Stephen was just echoing the prayer that Jesus prayed. On the night Jesus had been whipped and scourged and crowned, put on upon his head, and then after that, spikes were nailed into the palms of his hands, into his feet. He was laid across and splayed out naked on the cross. And then they raise that cross up, it raises up, falls down straight, the tension and everything of this bleeding, beat up, bruised man being holding his weight upon the spike. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Stephen was just echoing the prayer of his master. See, it all started with the church conflict, though. It all started, Stephen prays, as a conflict in the church. There's been conflicts in the church for a long time, and, and so having, having conflicts in the church isn't anything new. I want to share with you guys some conflicts that have recently erupted in the church in the last probably 10, 15 years. Uh, and these are true conflicts, and some of you are going to feel just a little awkward when I get to a couple of them. But these are true, true conflicts that happen. It, the first one is this. Oops, not that one. Let me go the direction. There was a church dispute, a church conflict, on whether or not to install dividers in the women's restrooms. Can you believe that? That was a conflict in this church. It said, you know, we want all the ladies to be able to see all the other ladies go to the restroom. No, no, no. We need to keep it open. There was a church that had significant conflict over that issue. There was a church that had an argument that wanted to know whether or not to remove the clock in the worship center. Can you imagine a church getting up in arms at a business meeting about whether or not we can remove a clock in the worship center? A lot of you all don't even see that, but you got your wrist, you're going, how? But if there was a clock above my head, hey, Paul, can we have that clock? I don't know, would, would we fight over that as a church? How about this? How about this? There was a 45-minute argument over the type of file cabinet purchase, black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. Really? Really? Over. Oh, well, we have to have brown because brown matches the pews. No, we have to have black. Black matches. No, it needs to be two or three or four door. They spent 45 minutes arguing over what kind of file cabinet to have. Wow. You know? And that's a, there is church, and look at this, look at the end of it. Church reported fights over the type of coffee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. It's working. You know, in one church, you know, they moved from Folgers to Starbucks, and, and a church got in a fight over having Starbucks versus Folgers. Oh, you know, that costs $2 more. Ah! And another church, they simply moved to a stronger, left the church because of it. Man. Okay. Well, when you start buying the coffee, I guess you can argue about what kind of coffee to have, right? Okay, so, so that's just crazy, leaving a church over the wrong brand of coffee. Here's another one. Some church members left a church because one church member, they hid the vacuum cleaner from them. 
They, okay, and as a result of that, it caused a major fight and a split in the church. Isn't that nice? You know, we, we've had conflict in churches for years, and, and well, you know, every time I go to use the vacuum, I can't find it, and so I'm just going to hide the serve. Yikes, a hootie. You know, and oh, that church really sucked, by the way. Um, it just, there you go, you get it, huh? Yeah, vacuum, okay, okay. A dispute, there was another church that had a dispute over um, who should be allowed to wear black t-shirts. Since black is the color of the devil. I'm looking at the back row back there. <laughs> Tommy, Deborah, Deborah, and Rich, man. <laughs> you guys gotta go. <laughs> Isn't that? Can you? Here, here, you're a guest. A welcome, welcome guest to Colton Community Church. You gotta put on a pink shirt. I don't know what we would do, right? You, you, because you, you're wearing the color of the devil. That's really going to be open and welcoming to everybody, right? Churches, you know, they get, they get caught up in some conflict. And we're going to talk about why Stephen was getting stoned and, and what, what precipitated the fact that he was going to get stoned and the fact that he was able to pray that difficult prayer yet impossible not to pray. It was a church conflict. A church conflict. The church in the book of Acts. This is chapter 6. And so in chapters 1, 2, the Holy Spirit comes. In power is chapters 3 and 4. Peter preaches this amazing, he, amazing sermon and thousands come. And then, then, then there's this conflict about Peter and John. They get a pray. And the church is growing. Thousands upon thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus. The church is growing. This is the beginning of it. And as the church grows, so do the the personalities, and so do the responsibilities. And in this church, there was a conflict between a group of people. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, I'll explain it in a second. In those days, the numbers of the disciples were increasing. The church was growing. Things were happening. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Stop so that we can understand what's going on. What are the Hebraic Jews versus what are the Hellenistic Jews? And, and are they at conflict? Well, first of all, in that culture, you didn't have like a social security system. You had, you had people, friends. If you were a widow, you didn't have a husband to take care of your needs. And you probably didn't have any source of income. And so there was a daily distribution that the church, because everybody was being so generous, were now giving to the widows. And Jesus said, you need to take care of the widows and the orphans. And so, so the church was doing its job, taking care of the needs of the widows. And in the process, Hellenistic Jews are Jews that were kind of outside of the city of Jerusalem. Let's put it like that, pretty simple. They were Jews that probably had adapted some culture and some, some ways of thinking of the Greek empire. They would come in during temple days, and, and when they heard about Jesus, they accepted Jesus Christ, but they had the cultural backgrounds of the Greeks. The um, Hebraic Jews were Jews that probably lived in Jerusalem, maybe even within the walls. They, they were totally, thoroughly seeped in the customs and traditions of the Jews. And so you have people seeped in the customs and traditions of the Greek empire, and people cust- seeped in the customs and traditions of the Jewish empire, and the Jewish people would think those people are rotten people. They don't know how to do things. And so what was happening was that in the church, the Hellenistic Jews, those outside of the city, were being kind of neg- negated, neglected. 
offering of the bread. And so there was kind of a priority, a pecking order. Well, you're not as good as the other people. And, and that caused a church conflict. And, you know, some people complained about it, and then pretty soon it starts to get bigger and bigger, and the complaint ultimately gets up to the disciples, gets up to the 12 disciples that are there. So the 12 disciples gathered together. It got so bad, you got to say this, when you see that little beginning, they gathered together. It got so bad that all of the disciples, amongst all of their places that they were at, had to gather together, had to have a meeting, and they said, come on, guys, Peter, John, Philip, Andrew, let's go, Matthew, let's gather, we got to solve this problem. And they gathered them together, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God. Wait on tables, they're not saying that they're better than waiters. They're saying, you know, we've been given this great gift. We walked with Jesus for three years. We have the unique ability to tell the stories about Jesus' life that, that others don't, who came to faith later. We've been given these gifts to preach and to teach and to pray, and we walked with Jesus. And, and so it would be better for us to share what we have been given so that, so that others, others, other people then can take care of those administrative needs, those, those other details. And so we need to find some people that can come alongside and do those administrative needs so that we can do what we've been charged with. So they break camp and they call a big church meeting and they say there's seven men among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. And so the apostles said, you know what, we've, we've got to help We've got to understand it, but we've got to help other people understand how the Word of God, how Jesus is in the Old Testament text. We've got to help them understand that. And we've got, we got to get a pray, and while we do that, we want to know that these administrative details are being taken care of. And the proposal pleased the whole group. So the church said, you're right. You're right, Philip. You're right, Matthew. You need to be going doing that. We'll take care of these details. So then they went out and they chose seven men. They chose Stephen and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip and Prochorus, and Nicor, Timnon, Parmenthes, and, Nic- and Nic- I'm sorry, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert of to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles, and the apostles laid their hands on them. Here's a sidebar for a second. As a church leader, and, and as church leaders, we're always wanting to put the right people in the right place to expand the ministry profoundly. We want to put you, and, and we know that God has gifted you. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. We know that God has gifted you to do something. We want to see a place to affect and make this ministry profoundly powerful for the work of Jesus Christ. We want to see you serve in ways that, that help you grow in your faith, help you grow and connect other people to Jesus. Putting the right people in the right place expands the ministry profoundly. Look what verse 7 says. When the right people are in the right place, the word of God spread. And the number of disciples increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. In other words, because Philip and Andrew and Nathaniel, they were able to go out and preach the word of God, priests came to faith. In other words, because those who were gifted in, in being able to share the word of God were able to go out and do the word of God instead of come back and doing all these administrative details because they were able to do that, the church grew rapidly. So let's look a little bit about 
Stephen, and let's find out what makes Stephen so significant, because we don't know that much about those other people. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. He was from outside of Jerusalem. He comes into Jerusalem. He hears the word of God some reason, somehow. He becomes a disciple of Jesus, but he's a Hellenistic Jew, and they put Hellenistic Jews to help solve the problem. The first quality of the right person, and I think that's what we want to be, right? You want to be the, what made Stephen the right person? Was it that he was so administratively gifted? Was it that he was so talented? Was it that he was good-looking? Was it that he was so smart? No. Here it is. What made Stephen the right person was he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you want to be the right person for the right place to help the church grow, you need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning, is what made Stephen so significant? It was that Stephen had submitted himself to the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon believers. First, it comes upon chapter 1. Mark is introducing, he doesn't worry about the birth stories of Jesus. He doesn't worry about all the, uh, the genealogy of Jesus. He gets right to the story. He wants to tell people about Jesus. And in Mark chapter 1, listen to what Mark says. At that time, so Jesus was about ready to begin his ministry. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens bring, being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice from the heaven said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him out. Jesus, in that short little verse becomes filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit takes Jesus and he leads Jesus out to the desert. Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit both from his baptism and in the desert and for the rest of his life. The Apostle Paul was empowered by the Holy Spirit too. Saul, who was called Paul, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was filled, the Apostle Paul was filled, Peter was filled. In Acts chapter 8, 4, it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to the rulers and elders of the people. And so here you have these mighty men. You know, Jesus, no one can top Jesus. Of course he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, Peter walked with Jesus. Of course he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul got knocked off his, onto his can along the Damascus Road, and Paul had this vision. Of course Paul's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What about us? I'm neither Jesus, nor am I Paul, nor am I Peter. Well, I am Paul, but not the same one. Um, and so we see, in, and we see in the book of Acts, we see this, that the Samaritan believers were empowered by the Holy Spirit. These people who were kind of half-breeds, if you will, the, the true Jews rejected them. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. Half they were Samaritans. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a profound way. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. For a Jew, you would say, oh my goodness, how did that happen? The Samaritans? That's like us in Colton saying, the people in Rialto, they can receive the Holy Spirit too? No, no, not the Rialtians. Um, you know, what do you call a person from Rialto? A Rialtian? I don't know. Um, but beyond that, let's go even farther. The Gentile believers received the Holy Spirit. Peter, this is in chapter 10. We're going to get to this in a couple of weeks. Peter has this vision. And in this vision, Peter is given by God. Peter is told to go and eat. And, 
and he goes to this man named Cornelius, and Cornelius is a Gentile. A good Jew with a Gentile house, he'd be like, me, I'm not allowed to step on the ground, and all of a sudden I step down here, and I can talk to you, and I can walk with you, and I can be in your face, and I can go, wow, look at this. Peter walked into the house of the Gentile, and in the house of the Gentile, Cornelius believed, and Cornelius received the exact same gifts that Peter had received Way up here, in, in the upper room, Peter received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then here, the Samaritans receive it. There, the Gentiles receive Everybody receives the Holy Spirit. The key is you've got to believe in Jesus Christ. You've got to accept him as Lord. And when you believe him, you can become empowered by the Holy Spirit. Watch this church, because my challenge for us today, I want to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you want the Holy Spirit that was given to you the moment you believed? Do you want that Holy Spirit, him, to empower you to do great things? Let me tell you some stories. Tell you some stories. There's an old lady who lived in a, in a Scottish hut like this. Conditions. And as she was living there, her, her son, this is hundred, a couple hundred years ago, her son, you know, separated and he migrated over to America. And in America, he became a wealthy businessman. And so this old lady now, and, and the roof leaks, and she's got sparsely furnished house, and you know she just eats porridge or whatever else she eats in Scotland, because that's what they have a lot of, right? Sheep and grass. So they make this little grass sheep stew. And um, so her friend comes over, and, and her friend hears stories about her son, and she says, you know, does your son ever send you any money to help you? Because the mom was t- bragging about how wealthy and rich her son is. She goes, no, no, but he writes a lot of letters. And she writes me a lot of letters, and, and not only that, but he sends me all these nice, weird pictures. And the guest, you know, wanted to say, rah, 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 that rotten guy. And instead, the guest has a little self-control. And she says, can I see some of those pictures? And this lady gets this box, and in this box, it's filled with all kinds of weird pictures to the lady, and it turns out, cash. He was sending her banknotes all the time. He, he, she, she had a more than enough money. She had an abundance of money. And she didn't know it. See, the truth is she owned the money, but she didn't possess the money. She didn't know what she had, even though she had it. She didn't know what she had. Let me tell you another story. Same point. There was a rancher. This guy's name, this is a true story. This guy's name is Yates. Yates had a ranch in, in West Texas. And it was a big sheep ranch, and he would take, and he lived kind of, he was so poor, he had to live off government subsidies. He didn't have any money. And, you know, it's good clothes to wear, and he was always embarrassed whenever he had to go somewhere public because of the clothes that his kids wore. And, and one day, he gets a knock on the door, and it's a couple of oil seismologists for an oil company. They come knocking on his door, and they say, Mr. Yates, Mr. Yates, we want to drill a well on your property because we think that there's oil on this property. Will you allow us to do that? And so Mr. Yates allows them to drill a well on his property. The well produces 80,000 barrels of oil a day. 30 years later, 30 years after the initial drilling Government seismologists went back out there. They looked at it. And then the 125,000 barrels of oil a day. One of the most productive wells in West Texas. It's called Yates Well. See, the truth is he owned it, but he didn't possess it. 
He owned it, but he didn't possess it. The same is true with us spiritually. I teach when you bow your knees, say, Lord Jesus Christ, I am a sinner. Come into my heart. Lord, come into my life. It's clear that the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and he's a deposit that is guaranteeing you for inheritance. He, 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 he comes upon you. But now you've got it. You're like the widow with, with all that cash. You're like Mr. Yates with all, something missing between the fact that we have it and we don't possess it. And so I think that there are some issues that we need to do called spiritual breathing. A couple of, I'd say about a month ago, I'm going to have him correct me. About a month ago, you taught on the Holy Spirit in your Sunday school room, right, Rich? Yeah, I think he kind of, yeah, he kind of went through the same exercise. Because this is really, really important, church, is if we can learn how to, how to then take this thing that we have and allow the Holy Spirit to come and possess us, our lives will be radically different. Then if we try to control it and we just kind of invite Jesus, well, Jesus, you can be in the back seat of my car of my life. Every now and then I'm going to ask you for directions, but please don't, don't tell me. Or we can say, Jesus, I'm going to submit my life to you in every possible way. So we're going to practice spiritual breathing. I have an exercise for you if this works. In a second... We're all going to take a big breath. Got to wait for the ball to go in. When the ball starts to make its way down, I want you to take a big, deep breath. Ready? Deep breath. Exhale. We're going to do this one more time. Ready? Got to inhale. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do a practice called spiritual breathing. Because I think it's really important that we learn how to do this. Spiritual breathing is because spiritual breathing says that you are filled with the Holy Spirit by faith alone. Church, it is by faith alone that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, in other words you do not have to have an emotional ecstatic experience in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to say, well, you know, I've never spoken in tongues. Well, I've never healed anybody. Therefore, I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit. That is wrong. You are filled with the Holy Spirit by faith. You don't need a significant sign done to you by somebody else or done to you by yourself. You don't need somebody to lay hands on you in order to receive the Holy Spirit. And I praise God for that. Imagine the Holy Spirit said, no, only the pastor and be the, be the giver of spiritual gifts. You know how much power that would give me? Uh, Marsha, I like. Deanna, I don't, so you don't get them this week, okay? And you know how much authority? That would be horrible. I would start judging. I would start using that power in a horrible way. You don't need me or the elders to lay hands on you in order to have the Holy Spirit. You don't, because, because then that puts us playing God in the position of where God is. God's the one who gives it. You have faith alone, right? You're not filled by the Holy Spirit in such a way that you have to practice it. You have to practice. You have to practice. So, oh, oh, and you start speaking in tongues or you start dancing in so that you can get the Holy Spirit moving in you. No, in faith alone that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Faith in what? Faith, first of all, in the desire to live a life that will please the Lord. You need to have a deep burning passion to please the Lord. What does it say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. You need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, my wife is kind of almost always on, a, on what she calls a constant diet. 
What she did a couple of years ago was she started to, every day, she started to make this very small salad for lunch. And then she realized that when she got hungry, she said, that's being thin. Because, because she realized that she could eat until she wanted to eat and eat everything she wanted to eat, but she realized that what hunger was telling her was that it's time to eat and I've got to restrict it. I've got to, I've got to be moderate how much I eat in order to be thin because she... Want, she doesn't want to move to being overweight. I think you and I need to do the same thing as we need to have a hunger, that hunger for righteousness, that hunger for life. And so in you, because the Holy Spirit is in you, the moment you believe, there is a hunger for righteousness. You see something that's wrong and all of a sudden you go, you go, that's just jive with what the Bible says. It doesn't jive with what, what God's word teaches. There, there, and, and, and there's something wrong, and you do something wrong, and you go, that's not right. That's not where I need to be. You need to have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Number two, you must be willing to surrender your life to the will of the Lord our God. You need to be able to surrender. And so the passage is a long one. The passage says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies, God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Imagine there was an altar right here, a big, giant, marble altar. And imagine you putting yourself on top of that altar. Today, today, I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice for you, a living sacrifice. So, may all of my blood today be poured out for you. How would your morning change is if in the morning you put yourself on the altar and said, God, these are my plans, but I submit to yours today. This is what I, I, I'm going to think through today, but, but Lord, it's yours. And, and if you choose to change the direction of my life this morning, I, I accept it because not my will, but your will be done. Not my life, but your life. Not my heart, but your heart. Not my mind, but your mind. Do not conform any longer to the pattern, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, you've decided that you want to live for God. You, you've decided that you're going to put yourself on the altar. But there's one more thing. Actually, two more things. One is you need to confess any known sin in your life. You need to say, God, that was a sin. I'm sorry. See, you can't come to the altar and, and, and then say, well, Lord, you have to accept me with all the brokenness. No, you want to be a good, pleasing sacrifice. Maybe there's some sin in your life that you need to deal with, you need to let go of, and you need to say, God, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for those words I said that were hurtful and harmful. Forgive me for those thoughts that I thought that were completely out of your will. Forgive me for those actions that I took that, that didn't resonate or didn't, they, they were against your word. God, I confess them. I confess these things that I am doing wrong. If you want the Holy Spirit to have power over you, you've got to confess your sin. If you claim to be without sin, if you claim that you don't have any sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in us. Sins. He is faithful and unjust. He will forgive your sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but I want to be a 
good sacrifice for God today. In order to be a good sacrifice, I need to be dedicated to him, and so confess my sins. God, forgive me. God, thank you for your forgiveness. But I call it 3A and 3B because I have known Christians that that confess their sins, but they don't change their life. And so 3B has to do with the fact that once you identify one, and the Holy Spirit could be talking to you right now about a sin in your life that you need to not just confess, but I think that you might you must repent from any sin that you are currently engaged in. Or it could be a sin into which you, yeah, you confess it to God, but you don't change your behavior. And so every morning you say, God, forgive me for that sin yesterday. Or maybe you've actually given up and you stopped confessing and you've stopped repenting. Repenting is doing the hard work of confession. Repentance is doing the hard work of confession. Sometimes it's easy to confess, yeah, 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 I gossiped. I'm sorry, God, I gossiped. And then you get around your friend who you've been gossiping with and you start gossiping again. And then you gotta, you gotta confess it again. Yeah, God, I'm afraid. And then, then into fear again. And yeah, God, I lusted. And then you happen and then you continue to get in that environment where lust is easy. Yeah, God, I lied. And you continue to put yourself in situations where, where you're not telling anybody that you're lying. You're just telling God that you're lying. You need to repent. Repentance is a change in course, a change in direction. So let's say you struggle with lying, you struggle with deceiving people, and you confess it to God, but you don't tell anybody about it. Maybe there's some things in which you need to repent and you need to stop hiding, and you need to start telling everybody or telling a good person, you know what, I need help changing course, I've tried it so often. You need to repent from your sin. Confession, repentance. You must discard the sin so that you can embrace the Savior. You must let go so you can bring him in. You can't sin and Christ can't occupy the same space. And so many of us try to walk, and that's why we're powerless. We're weighed down. Instead of being able to, to walk high, we're weighed down or burdened by the sins that we carry and, and we're so used to seeing everybody else on this level. Sorry, Cecilia, I know this is where you're at normally. <laughs> that just came off the top of my head, sorry. But, the, um, but you're used to seeing everybody else down to this level. But, but imagine that you confess your sins, you repent, you share, and, and all of a sudden God uses you because you're free, you're light, let go. God is not going to condemn you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. The fact that you're carrying around those sins means that you've not let God let go. Just let it go, church. Repent and allow the Holy Spirit that you've already got to release you to the thing that God has intended. Stephen was. Thank you. Stephen was. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, the number one category for him being used by God. He was also filled with power. The power of the Holy Spirit flowed through them, so much so that that it says that he was able to perform miraculous things. He was filled with great wisdom. Read chapter 7 of the book of Acts. 
In chapter 7, at the very end of chapter 6, they say, this guy, he, he's saying bad things against the temple. And so they bring him into this council, Stephen, into this council. And what does Stephen do? Stephen, for multiple verses, talks about the history of the Jews and talks about Moses and says, God does not dwell in temples. And this brilliant speech that he gives shares that God dwells in our hearts. He, he, he isn't confined to brick and mortar, but God is greater than all of that. And you can have a relationship with that God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Full of wisdom, full of grace. So much grace, so much grace, that he can pray this impossible prayer. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. See how why it's impossible? On your own, you couldn't pray this. On your own, with your own physical limitations, burdened down by the weights, and you could never pray this prayer on your own. Filled with the Holy Spirit, the power of God flowing in and through you, you cannot help but pray this prayer. So let's say this prayer out loud. One, two, three. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. One more time. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. If you need to confess, I'm going to give us an opportunity now just to quietly talk to God and say, God, forgive me for any sins. If the Holy Spirit who is in you brings something, confess it to him. And if you need to repent of some sins, do so. Don't wait. Don't wait until this afternoon. Just start making decisions today, right now, to repent of your sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, in the quietness of this room, we surrender all. In the quietness of the room, Lord, we give you our life. I pray, Lord, for anybody in this room. Pray, one, Lord, that you would have access to their heart right now. And if there are sins in their heart that they need to confess, Lord, that your spirit that dwells in all of us would be speaking to them. And that they would know that there is great compassion and forgiveness as they present these requests to you. Say sorry as they apologize for being offensive to you. Lord, if there are people in this room who need to repent, repent of their own selfish ways, their own selfish desires, and they've been living a, a way that doesn't honor you, Father, give them the strength through the power of your Spirit to change. Thank you, Lord, for filling us with your Spirit. Lord, for emboldening us to be like Stephen, wise and graceful.